Hey, this is Anthony Green, and you're listening to The New Scene. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. Tommy, we've done it. The news is out that we have partnered with Iodine Recordings. Hopefully you've seen the announcement by now. And we are now the new scene podcast. How do you feel about that, Tommy? I'm really excited. I'm really, really, and not like in a disingenuous way. Like I'm really excited because I love all the bands on Iodine. So this is a really great kind of like partnership. Also, Casey does have a really good business acumen. So he can really help us out kind of like fine tune things that we aren't really attuned to and things that we don't necessarily know about the industry. And uh, I think it's going to be amazing. Yes, yes. We're excited. It's been in the works for a while. And now the news is out. We're not going to go too deep on the details on this show because we have a special bonus show planned for Wednesday with Casey himself from Iodine Recordings. And we're going to dig into the story of how this all came about and what's going on and what to expect in the future. But I can tell you now, folks, the show will remain largely the same. We won't be taking anything away. We will only be adding things. So we're really excited for this, the next chapter of our show. This show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if you're looking to advertise with us, please dial. (laughs) There will be more news. But in more important news, to kick off the first episode of the new scene, we have Andrew Klein of Strife. Strife is a classic, classic hardcore band. They have so much great material. They have the return of the California Takeover LP, the new one coming out. We're going to talk about that. We're going to dig into the history of Strife. It's going to be an incredible show. That was the first hardcore videotape that I ever bought was Strife's One Truth Live. I bought it from Siren Records up in Doylestown. Oh, really? Yeah, that was like my mom's gift every year where she would give me like a gift certificate to Siren Records and I would go up there and go crazy. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, Strife is a great band. They've seen it all. They've done it all. And we're going to hear about it. And it's a great way to kick off the first show. So, yeah. So how are we doing, Tommy? This is pretty much, I guess, all that's going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be more eventful than that. It's like, hey, no, yeah. it's just yeah, everything. It's look. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's the same show, guys. So um, <laughs> I, I don't really have much going on right now. We had a fucking blast on Halloween, though. It was really, really fun. Uh, the baby's finally old enough to kind of understand what's going on. The girls all dressed up as like, candy and treats and stuff like that. And it was really cool to see the girls go out. And also, my neighborhood is really heavily traveled. I probably had about 100 to 150 trick-or-treaters last night. Really? Yeah. I went through the eight pound bag of candy that I got from Costco plus a little bit more. Wow. Yeah. It was really awesome though. There were some really cool costumes. Um, and then on top of that, 
it's really just nice to see people out and like together. Yeah, there was a lot of people out around here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And, you know, most of, most of the younger kids are out during the daytime still. And they, the storefronts do this thing where they have a window and they'll give kids candy. I only got, I don't know, maybe three sets of trick-or-treaters. There wasn't a ton. I think, pl- but plus I'm in the garden apartment, so I think most of them go upstairs to the main apartment yeah. to knock there for candy. But I had some ready to go just in case, and now I've got a lot of leftovers, which I love. Yeah, things are great. I'm I'm glad this partnership is finally announced because we've been working on it for a long time. There's been a lot of phone calls, a lot of planning, a lot of different things. I think this is the direction the show needs to go. And what else? I don't know. Well, well the, how are how are you? Me? I'm a mess. <laughs> I know. You've been texting me, and I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. He's going to be a ball of nerves. I'm anxious all the time, but it, it's it's part of the deal. What the people really want to know is, how are you adjusting to the keyboard and mouse using uh, for Call of Duty? Oh, I'm getting much better. That's phenomenal. Yeah, much, much better. It's uh, it's just going to take some time. Was it just like, was the learning curve really steep? Did you play like the first few games and go, fuck, like, I can't stand it like this. I'm going to go back to the controller. It, yeah, I actually <laughs> did go back to the controller. But then I was like, no, like you can't do this. You have to put in the time and the effort. I would literally walk up to something and like have to look at the keyboard and then press the key. There was no fluid movement. There was no anything. But and I was like, oh, this is going to take like a year to get good. And I don't know, I'm a couple weeks in and it's much better. Uh, I have some pretty fluid movement, some good games. It's uh, it's going well. And Tommy, this past weekend, I watched Dune. Oh, how was that? You know, the internet has been blowing up with mentions and memes, and it's in a frenzy over this movie. I watched it, and it was a bit of a slow start. And don't worry, folks, there will be no spoilers in my description. It was a bit of a slow start. I don't know anything about Dune. My my only knowledge of Dune is the sandworms called Chai Halud, and I only know that because of the band Chai Halud. Yeah. So I'm watching it, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, maybe I just don't like new movies anymore. Maybe I just can't have an attachment to anything. Maybe there's just too much CGI and I can't get into it. Maybe I'm not paying attention enough. You know, I, 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 I don't pay attention nearly enough when I watch things because I watch at the computer, so I'm on the phone, I'm on the internet i'm i'm scatterbrained but as the movie progressed i got into it and ultimately i would say it's very very good i recommend it and i look forward to part two which will be coming out eventually oh get out really yeah it was good it was really i i got into it i got into the characters i felt emotion i got invested in the story it was it was great i remember i i have a copy of the book and I started reading it probably 10 years ago or so. Because yeah. the, the book just looks so cool. It's a fucking rad looking book. It looks like it's from like the 30s. It's But it's this really cool book. Has this ribbon that runs through the middle as the book plate, like, you know, the book holder. But I remember the last thing I got to is where they introduced the idea of the uh, melange. Like the, the spice that they have to use for interdimensional travel or space travel. Yes. And that's the last thing I really remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have been on page 30. Like, I don't think I got much further than that. I was like, fuck. Well, Tommy, now that you're a big time professional podcaster, you could spring $15 a month for HBO Max and watch the film. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with, uh, we have Hulu Plus, Netflix, and Disney Plus, and then no cable anymore. So I, I've been okay with that. 
Yeah, me too. There's there's no time to watch things. No, and then the other thing is, is uh, I, I think a lot of times when it comes to watching movies, I really get mad at myself because we have so many things to do. Like, I end up doing laundry while I'm watching a movie or, you know, watching it on my phone while I'm, like, emptying the dishwasher or some shit like that where I'm just doing housework and I'm like, you know what? This is not how this movie is supposed to be experienced. I'm not supposed to be watching it on like an iPhone 11. Like that's not like this. this <laughs> yeah, isn't I, I did that too. I was like, may, wait, maybe I should be watching this in the theater, you know, because I'm at my computer and I'm distracted. And I was like, this could have been much better in a theater. But I'm glad they put these movies on HBO Max sometimes now because I would just never go to a theater under most circumstances. There's no time. Oh, it's yeah. just not something I would do, really. Well, folks, now we're going to speak to Andrew Klein of Strife. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Andrew Klein. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. You know, you've done so much in music. There's a rich history with Strife. We've got the upcoming California Takeover LP. We're going to cover all that. But Andrew, first, I have to ask you, how are you doing today? Today, I'm, I'm doing very well. Very well. Can't complain. Just um, settling in after Halloween weekend and uh, attacking Monday. Yes, same here. So what what's your setup, Andrew? You got a wife? You got kids? What's going on? Uh, no, no wife, no kids. I got a, uh, a girlfriend and a French bulldog. Now that is the ideal setup. That is what I'm looking to recreate for myself. Yeah, pretty pretty easy life. That's nice. So where are you living these days? I'm based uh the LA area. I'm in uh, Studio City. So Andrew, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about where you grew up. I grew up in a city called Thousand Oaks. It's about um 30 miles north of LA. Uh it's Ventura County. A uh, very small suburb, probably about 12 miles to the beach and we're kind of equal distance between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. Oh, nice. So how was it there? Was it kind of your typical L.A. suburban area? Yeah, it's a small town, suburbia, um, a mall, a movie theater, some stores, you know. Uh, now, I would say the most famous landmark or city next to us, uh, Calabasas is is very close, uh, made famous yes. by the Kardashians and Kanye West and Travis Barker and a, a whole slew of celebrities that live there. Um, I would say that's about a five-minute drive from Thousand Oaks. Um, Thousand Oaks borders a, a city called Westlake. Growing up, you'd have people like uh, Heather Locklear living there, Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee. Uh, so kind of like a weird little small town, celebrity hotspot as, as well. Um, you know, it's a good place to raise a family, a little boring, but... Um, one of my favorite skateboarders from of all time is from Thousand Oaks, Mikey Taylor. He skates for a bunch of different companies, but he always puts out videos from, I think it's called Borchard. It's one of the skate parks. Borchard Park. Yeah, Borchard yeah, Park. Borchard, yeah. yeah. He always films there. And it's really like, I, it's one of those things where it's just him cruising around, having a good time. But yeah, he's kind of on his way out. But at the same time, he's uh, one of those guys that you just, I like his personality more than I like his skating. He just seems like a really nice down to earth dude. Yeah. So like Thousand Oaks is a small town. So like, as a kid, that's what you do, right? You'd, you'd skateboard, you'd start a band, because um, there was nothing else you could do. You know, you'd probably get into trouble because you're bored, right? Um, 
but skateboarding, you know, I started, I started skateboarding heavily, like starting seventh grade and, you know, we'd skate all over town. We'd build mini ramps in our friends' backyards. We'd skate little ditches and, and, and bowls. And, you know, we'd find all the cool, cool skate spots and stairs and the handrails. And, uh, I was just going to ask, did you breach that era from like skating ramps to when street skating became really, really popular or what, like when you were skating, what, like what years? Um, I probably started in like 87. It, it was, it was really, it was more street skating when, when yeah. I started, you know, we'd, we'd skate to school and we'd grind the curbs and it was just like, we saw the, the, the birth of the handrail, right? Like that yeah. didn't exist. And that, that happened right then. We saw that happen. We are learning that in real time and, you know, tricks like the all the impossible or whatever. That was like a, a new, a new trick. Uh, yeah. There were some ramp skating, but more mini ramp than uh, vert ramps. Andrew, I think we're might like, we probably are in the exact same era of skateboarding. Cause like my first like three or four boards were like just tailboards. And then uh, I think I got a Santa Monica airlines one that had a nose on it. And I was like, what the hell? This is crazy. <laughs> like, this, this, we're really into uh, Powell, right? Every, every kid is. But from then, from there, we got really into Alva's, like the Fred Smith mini, right? Which did have a nose, but not like a board, a modern board, right? Uh, so we were really into those, the dog pound boards. And then it was like the blind board. Uh, Santa Monica Airlines was big. World Industries blind. You know, that that was like the progression. You know, I, I remember going into high school and, and there was like, there was a brand called Getaware. I don't know if you remember. It wasn't too popular. That that was like the coveted shorts, right? If you can get the Getaware shorts and the blind jeans, like you, that was the fit. You know, so I had the blind jeans and, and purple and, and green. With a chain wallet. And let me guess, you had Airwalks with the big stripe on the side. Or Vans? Vans. We're Cali. We, we, we're into the Vans. As Beastie Boys, as Check Your Head came out, you know, we were searching out the uh, the Puma and Adidas uh, that you couldn't buy in stores really at that time. Did Is that how you discovered punk rock and hardcore, just being involved with skating? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we had a little skate crew starting about seventh grade. You know, the first tapes I bought it, Depeche Mode, A Broken Frame and corrosion of conformity technocracy so like um that and that was heavily influenced by like thrasher magazine and then from there you know you get all the more mainstream and they weren't very mainstream but you know the bands on labels that were more widely distributed you know we had stores like music plus and the warehouse and you'd go there and and pick up cassettes and you know you could find minor threat you could find Circle Jerks, DRI, Seven Seconds. Uh, you know, the bigger names uh, were were easier to find. Black Flag, Descendants. That's kind of where it started. Um, a lot of these bands were recognizable by their logo, which you may have seen painted on somebody's grip tape or on a sticker on somebody's folder, right? Or a write-up in Thrasher magazine. So, you know, I think a lot of kids my age that was kind of their early exposure. So we're skating, we're into punk rock, we're into hardcore, all the big bands, Minor Threat, Black Flag. Tell us how and when you start playing music, Andrew. 
you know, it's funny. So we have a little skate crew in seventh grade. Uh, we skate, we all skate to school together. We, we, we used to do this funny thing. We'd skate to school and then we'd hide our, our skateboards like in a field, like sometimes in trees or whatever, cause you couldn't bring them onto campus. Then we'd get our skateboards afterwards and then uh, skate home. Right. So we, we had this kind of pretend band and my friend Mike was supposed to be the singer. My other friend, Mike was supposed to play guitar. I was supposed to play bass. You know, and, and we never, we this never happened. But, so I was supposed to play bass in this band. I bought a guitar instead because I wanted to play guitar. And, um, you know, I started started learning guitar. I think some first songs were probably Metallica, like, I don't know, Metallica 1 and Fade to Black, right? And then I remember probably eighth grade, I had a next door neighbor and he was an older punk dude. He played drums and he had this, like insane record collection, punk, hardcore, like two-tone ska, reggae, right? So I would go to his house and I would borrow like four or five records at a time, bring them home, record them, you know, like Agnostic Front, Victim in Pain, Negative Approach, LP. He had like Necros, The Freeze, like he had an awesome record collection. I got into like Operation Ivy from him and he had everything, bad manners, whatever. So I'd go, I'd go, I'd ball, I'd ball records. I would take them home. I would record them. And um, I, I remember a time I was bored at home one day with my guitar and I had the first Bad Religion LP. And basically I was bored at home and I was like, oh, I'm going to learn how to play this. So eventually within the next day or two, I figured out the entire, how to play that entire record right did someone show you a basic bar chord or tuning or whatever or did you just kind of figure that stuff out okay so i i, I did uh, early on as a little kid i played piano i took piano lessons and played piano uh, could read music and then from piano i played the trumpet and again could play music uh read music and you know i was in marching band for a minute so I think just that kind of training uh, helped me learn to play by ear. I did take a few uh, guitar lessons early on, which is where I learned to play like the Metallica songs. Like I had this, uh, there was a there was a place called Instrumental Music where I lived that a few other people uh, that we know took lessons there too. And there was these heavy metal guys that were in this band called Theater. That we'd we'd call theatra. We'd call them be more dramatic. They're <laughs> glam metal, big big hair. Anyway, uh, there was a guy named Mike Davis that I took guitar lessons from. So I did take a few lessons with him. I, I actually I want to say maybe the other guy that taught there. It's coming to me. I think he played guitar for like uh, you know Transformers original theme song was like this heavy metal song. Yeah, yeah. I think he might have played guitar on that. Oh, that's oh, sick. I, I think. I, I might be wrong, but that, that, that popped into my head, so I'm going to go with that. Anyway, so I did take a few lessons uh, to learn some guitar basics. I wasn't really into the guitar lessons, so I had that record, and I just figured it out over the weekend. But it's, very, it's, very, uh, it's a very basic record and with very simple songs. So as long as you could keep up with the faster playing it's pretty easy 
And I think it was one of those records where if you kind of figured out the first song, the second song was almost the same, um, like phrasing on the guitar neck. Right. And you just kind yeah. of right. like played it backwards or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were all kind of very similar. Uh, so I did that. And then I remember, uh, playing along to instead, uh, bonds of friendship and learning that record too, which again is very similar and pretty simple. So was it your goal to be in a punk band and do that whole thing? Cause that ever since I discovered hardcore shows, I was hooked right away to the energy, the craziness and my friends were playing in bands and they were only 15, 16, 17 years old. And I was like, Oh my God, you can actually do this. So it was something I was really, really focused on trying to do. What was your experience? Well, I mean, that that was basically it, right? So uh, seventh and eighth grade, we were listening to the music. We were discovering it. We're trading tapes, you know, whether it's kids with older brothers that had the collections or me with my neighbors. But, you know, we were really kind of discovering the music. And from my neighbor uh, borrowing these records, I kind of discovered that I was more into – you know, I loved all the punk bands, but I was getting really more into like the New York hardcore side of things, you know, whether it was like Agnostic Front, which I mentioned, or Youth of Today, you know, a little bit heavier, right? So I start ninth grade. There's a kid at my school um, named Jeff Moore, who I had known. I think we went to elementary school too. Uh, he was one grade older than me, and I was very young. I started high school at, uh, I may have been. I may have even, I graduated when I was 17. I may have been 13 when I started. So he was probably, uh, he was great older, but he was probably two years older than me. And he had already gone to shows. He was friends with um, this band called Social uh, Social Justice, who later turned to Downset, you may have known. Uh, and and they're, they're based out of the Valley, right? Um, but he had gone to shows already. And uh, I started hanging out with him and he had records. And um, we were, getting into going to show. So my first show was like January of 1990. I was 14 years old and we saw it was uh, circle jerks and it was circle jerks, neurosis. And I think early no effects like on SNM airlines. And that was at uh, a venue called the country club, which is kind of legendary. It's off of uh receipt Boulevard in the Valley and that was less than a 30 minute drive from Thousand Oaks. So there was this awesome venue that held, you know, held about 800 people that was doing punk and hardcore shows, you know, a few times a month that was 30 minutes away from my house. So I was 14, I couldn't drive. Um I th- I don't think Jeff could drive at that time, but his sister could. So we we, we basically have convince anyone we could to drive us to shows, right? So we went to the Circle Jerk show. We went and saw, I remember MDC was an early show. We went to, we saw Agnostic Front right after the live record came out. You know, so we we started going to shows and, and catching rides however we could. At the same time, through my skate group, I um, my parents were divorced, so I had two different houses. So like one of my houses was, had the neighbor with the cool punk rock record collection. The other house was like, I was very close to this other group of kids. We'd skate every day. So one day we were skating in front of my, my neighbor's house, my friend, Jesse, 
who later became like a strife roadie. He's on the, um, on the cover of in this defiance, even in, in those photos, um, I skating over at his house and his next door neighbor comes out and he's into skateboarding and he's into punk. He just moved to town from Riverside. And that was Sid who be, you know, he was the drummer from strife. So I met him. We're both into skateboarding. We're both into punk and hardcore. You know, he shows up and he's like, Hey, borrow this. And he's got the minor threat VHS uh, I think it's the what live at nine thirty club or whatever. Uh, he's like, why don't you borrow this? So I borrowed that from him, and we were all into like the DRI crossover VHS and whatever. But um, he was like at least two years older than me, but he already played drums. He was in a band called SDI in Riverside, which is um, Society Defeated by Ignorance. They played like. Spanky's Cafe with Agnostic Front. They play with Youth of Today at Fairmont Park. They play with Uniform Choice. Like he's all, so he's already was in this band playing awesome shows and already a good drummer and at least two years older than me, but didn't drive. But so it's like, oh, cool. You know, I'm hanging out with Sid. This, this is my guy. So that like instantly, like we became best friends and. I remember, I think we were in line for a Bad Religion show. I think it was might have been Bad Religion in MDC. We we're in line for that show, and we were, like, X'd up, and we met this dude. It was Rick, Rick Rodney, who sings for Strife. He's like, oh, you guys are straight edge. He's like, oh, I, I, live, I live in Moore Park. He was also, I think Rick's three years older than me. He had a car. Uh, he had a, a little Volkswagen Carmen Ghia at the time. And um, he's like, oh, I live right by you. I'm straight edge. He was singing in a band called Monster Club, which uh, members of Still Life with Rick singing. So we met Rick. We started hanging out with Rick all the time. Rick could drive. So it was like every weekend Rick would show up and he's like, oh, we're going to show at Country Club. Whoever could fit in my Carmen Ghia, which would backfire the whole way there. Anyone that could fit in my car can go to the show. So we would like fight. Like, okay, I'm going to the show. You know, whoever, whoever get there first. Uh, so we we would go to shows at the country club. We'd drive all the way to Riverside, which, you know, was about a three-hour drive uh, to shows at Spanky's Cafe. And, you know, at that point, we're all just like full-blown into it. And those guys have already been in bands. So it was kind of like, okay – we're starting a band, right? So they started a band with a guitar player that worked with Sid at uh, at Toys R Us. And he was actually the older brother of my friend who I was in the little skate crew with in, in seventh and eighth grade, who we had this pretend band. So they started a band with him, but he's kind of like this uh, kind of like burnout metal guy, amazing guitar player, but just like, you know, not... He, he, he likes to play guitar, but not focus, right, to, like, go up to practice and, you know, whatever, what it takes to be in a band. So uh, he kind of flakes out, and, you know, I show up with, to Sid's with my guitar, and, and I'm like, I'm down, I'm down to jam. So we start jamming in Sid's room and start writing songs, and, you know, kind of just went from there. Like, Chad was part of our crew, and we're like, you're playing bass. Uh, you know, I think he had a guitar at the time. We're like, you're playing bass, so he went and got a base and we, we, uh, we went from there, but it was really like the energy was just us going to shows, 
seeing these bands and wanting to be a part. Right. So that's what we did. There was no band, like there was no really hardcore bands from Thousand Oaks. Like I said, Sid was in a band of Riverside that was three hours away. Rick was in a band from Moore Park, but there wasn't really like bands like doing it where we like, oh, these guys are in a band. Like they're showing us the ropes. It's like, no, we're going to start a band and we're going to jam in our friend's garage. And, we're, you know, we're going to try to book some shows, our, our own shows and just figure it out. So, yeah, I mean, in New York City, you've got any number of the, the great hardcore bands, uh, the New York hardcore stuff. So there wasn't really a, a California straight edge hardcore band in your area. In our area, no. Like the closest, okay, like like uh, Stalag 13, for instance. Stalag 13's from Oxnard, uh, but they were long broken up. You know, they were like early 80s. But there was no hardcore band from Thousand Oaks previous to us. And, 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 and really, it was like, okay, there was Social Justice, who was uh, from the Valley, like Silmar and Pacoima or whatever, right? So that was probably the closest. And then there was like random punk bands. But, you know, like we were really into like Chain of Strength or Outspoken. Outspoken was new. We like we saw them at the country club, uh, one of their first shows and got their demo. And, you know, from then we were like into every, you know, every show they played in Southern California. Basically, we would go to we, we would be there. But there wasn't a band from our area that was like showing us the ropes. Uh, there were many bands that sprung up later, uh, kids that, you know, hung around us and were influenced by us and our friends that were like, oh, I, I'm going to start a band too. And, you know, bands like Eyelid and Countervale and Insurgents and, and many others. But, the, you know, those, those bands came probably in, in the mid 90s from kids that were like going to see us. You know, I, I went from being two hardcore kids in my high school to, you know, there being 50 to 100 straight edge kids at every high school. You know what I mean? Like it kind of blew up. It was, yeah, it was like that around here too. When I went to high school, there was three kids into hardcore that I knew. And later, you know, everybody was into it. Yeah. So tell us about the early days of Strife. How, how were those early shows? How quickly did things pick up? I, th- I think for us... You know, I guess everyone was kind of driven. Uh, Sid had played bands before, and so had Rick. So they did kind of had some sort of network. But I, um, our first show was a show that Rick set up at his high school. It was Outspoken Headline. Downcast was supposed to play, but they canceled. We played. We were called Stand as One at the time. Monster Club played, which was the band Rick was in before Strife, but Rick had quit. So it was basically Still Life. And a band of Rick's friends called uh, Disgorge, which was kind of like a punk band. So we set up this show and it was like, you know, one of those shows like $3 with a can of food. I think it was a benefit for like last chance for animals. It was like an anti-vivisection kind of thing. And it was cool. You know, there was like kind of a lot of people. I don't know. I want to say there's probably like 100 to 200 kids, right? Um, Yeah. Which like pretty big deal. And Kids were going off and it was crazy. Uh, and that was our first show. And then from there, we booked another show. And it this is so crazy. So, like, I don't know what it's like where you live. But here, like, if you have a complex of condominiums, 
sometimes they'll have like a community pool and in that community pool, they'll have like a clubhouse where you could like rent it out for events or whatever. Right. So our friend Stacy lived in this condo complex in Moore Park uh, called Peach Hill. And we booked a show in their community room right next to the pool. And we, we rented a stage and we rented a PA and this was like, Sid, Sid was a big, big piece of this for sure. And it was, uh, it was Chain of Strength, Outspoken, uh, Solitude, which became Drift Again, Stand as One, uh, this band Groundwork from Arizona, and uh, Have No Part, which was pre-Mean Season, showed up, when, and they played a few songs as well. And that was like a, a crazy thing. Like, we had met the Chain of Strength guys, and, you know, we're like, hey, we're doing the show, and they decided to play, and, you know, we become friends with Outspoken at that point. So they played, and again, it was probably three dollars. I don't know. You can find a flyer online, and I I can't believe we pulled that off in a location like that, or even if that these bands agreed to come and play a show in a location like that. Because it's just looking back, it's just so ridiculous. Right. I just imagine like everything ending up in the pool. <laughs> no, I mean the show was like it was awesome. It was like um, like it's almost like the vibe of a um, show at like a. Uh, like a Elks, like a smaller like youth center or Elks Lodge or something. It was super cool. It was kind of like an early show and probably 150 kids, and it went off for every band. You know, at that time, it's like we had this group of friends, probably like 20 to 30 of us, and we went to every show together. You know, we we'd bring five carloads of kids to every show with kids in the trunk. You know, just packed. And all we wanted to do was like stage dive and and sing along. So like like when we weren't at a show, we were like stage diving like off of fences or like we had like this mattress set up in our friend's garage, just goofy shit, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's all we wanted to do, right? So we'd go to these shows and there'd be thirty kids and we'd all go crazy. So like I think that really worked in our favor because. We we get at, strife get added to these shows, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, where did these random kids come from? I'd never seen them before. Oh, they're all going crazy. Like oh, I'm gonna, I'm going to book strife again, you know. And and it didn't matter if the show was in in Riverside or San Diego or Long Beach. All our friends would come, and I think that really made it easier, you know, because we weren't a great band, you know, like we were just <laughs> fig- figuring out. Right, we were out of tune. We were feeding back, you know, typical early band stuff and um but you know we we bring kids and they would all go crazy for every band and i i think that really worked to our advantage right if you're bringing a lot of people with you wherever you go you're going to get booked that's it yeah exactly so how long are you playing before we get the attention of victory records we did a seven inch first on on new age right mike hartsfield played in the band for a little while through our friendship with Outspoken. Um, so he he kind of he joins a band. And then we do a 7-inch on Indecision Records. And then probably 1992, I get a phone call from Tony Victory, and he's working on new Only the Strong comp, uh, Only Strong 1993. And he's like, I, you know, I want Strive to be in the comp. We record what will remain for that comp. That becomes our biggest song also like a fan favorite off of that comp 
And I think after the success of, of that release, Tony, you know, hits us up and like, I want you guys to do an album. So that's kind of how that, that worked. We met Tony, um, even score was on tour and we played a show with them. I think we played with them in long beach and possibly, uh, at Spanky's in Riverside. So we, we did know him a, a little bit and then, um, yeah, you know, we recorded two songs around that time. We recorded, am I the only one for the it's for life comp? And then we recorded, uh, what will remain for, um, only strong. And, um, both of those songs, you know, at that point, that's kind of the, the tipping point for the band where you see it kind of just getting much, much bigger, and you see a bigger reaction at every show and people really connecting. Yeah, because there's a lot of classic bands on this uh, Only the Strong Comp. A lot of heavy hitters. Yeah, so that was that was uh, big for us. So the shows are getting bigger. Are you touring a lot at this time? So our first tour, we go to the East Coast. I'm still in high school. We go to the East Coast in 93. And we... Um, we do a little weekend where we play uh, Boston, New Jersey, and Syracuse. So there's a kind of legendary uh, Middlesex show we play, and it's uh, it's Strife, Outspoken, Endpoint, Ashes, Four Walls Falling, Mouthpiece, Flagman, Encounter, I think Lifetime. Uh, just this insane show in, in Middlesex. And our set is crazy and you know, again, those comps had just come out. So like what were main and, and am I the only one, like the crowd's going crazy for them. You know, the show at in Boston was insane. And that's really where, you know, we had, we had met uh, some of these bands on the West coast. Like we did little tours with mouthpiece, right? Their first West coast tour we played, we did a little run with them mouthpiece and resurrection. Uh, we had met lifetime. We did a, West Coast run on their first West Coast tour with uh, Lifetime and Upfront. Uh, so we have a lot of, uh, a kind of friendship with a lot of these Jersey guys, mainly like uh, Mouthpiece, Resurrection, and, and Lifetime. And so, like, we already had friends, and they were all spreading the word about the band through tape trading and VHS video trading. And, you know, it's funny, we played a show at Westlake High School, uh, probably in like 91. Sid and Chad went to that high school as well as some of our other friends. And also there was like a, there's a Blink-182 video that was filmed there in the uh, in the 90s. But uh, that video got passed around. And so like a lot of kids on the East Coast, that was their first exposure to the band was seeing this video. And I guess shows they weren't used to seeing reactions like that at the time. I think once like kind of the, uh, all the bands from the eighties died, the scene kind of changed and, you know, kids weren't like stage diving and dogpiling and, you know, all the things that we loved about hardcore. So they, you know, I think that video from that school kind of made a big mark, um, with, with a lot of kids across like the East coast. And, and, and that was really helpful as well for us. So you get signed with Victory, right? We're going to do our first LP, One Truth. One Truth. So let's talk about that. This is like what I would call the heyday of modern straight-edge hardcore. I mean, there's a lot of 
great bands out there. I imagine the shows are just absolutely crazy. Set the stage for us a little bit. Let's talk about that time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we kind of, we kind of figured out how to be in a band. We've made contacts all across the U S and the world, you know, we're touring, we're having successful shows and, you know, we decide we're going to write this LP. So victory is going to put it out. We go back to the same studio where we recorded the two comp songs and we start recording the record. And, and it was a crazy process. The studio was right off Hollywood Boulevard. It was an analog board, like in, in this basement. And we would like, literally we, we would go there. We'd show up at like, I don't know, like two in the afternoon. And there'd be nights, like we would come out of this, this basement and it would be like the sun rising. Right. You know what I mean? It's like 5 AM, <laughs> the sun's coming out. We're like, what? We've been here. You know, um, we spent a lot of time working on that record, especially, you know, mixing on all analog w- was a crazy experience. There'd be all of us like in control of different knobs on the board, whether it was like, okay, someone's riding the bass at this exact point, you got to pop it up and, and then move it down. Then you got to tweak this knob to the right to add the delay here. Like we were doing that all in real time. So like if we we're trying to nail a mix, like it could take us 20 different takes for everyone to do the correct move, like synchronized, <laughs> right? right? Uh, Cause this isn't like modern times where you just no. punch in and you, yeah, no. you gotta, you gotta nail it. Yeah. You got to nail it. So like you got to nail the playing you, but the mix was like where it really took everyone working, uh, kind of, um, you know, synced up and working together. It was, it was an interesting process. And that was like our first, you know, our, our first time recording aside for the comp song, but, you know, recording in a professional studio with a, with a real engineer and, and, um, uh, you know, at the time, people couldn't believe how I think we spent like $8,000 on that recording. Um, and people couldn't believe it. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. You know, I think unbroken's LP, I think they spent $500, but I think that's kind of what set that record apart from a lot of those other releases that were coming out in the nineties was like the production value. You know, we wanted to stand next to, you know, bringing it down and, and best wishes and, and sick of it all's record. You know, they, we wanted to stand up against our favorite records and that, you know, we brought those records in for references too. you know, like to show the engineer, like, this is what we're going for. And then from there, it it just, you know, once that record came out, we just kind of hit the ground running, touring heavily. We did a U.S. tour with sick of it all. We did a European tour with sick of it all. We did, East coast with a uh, snap case and earth crisis, you know, like at that point, like our record came out, earth crisis, firestorm came out and uh, the first snap case record. And then victory kind of just exploded at that point. Right. So it must've been amazing to be a part of all of that, because I think of that as a milestone in modern hardcore. I mean, earth crisis, snap case and strife all on that original California takeover tour. Those shows must have been unbelievable. Tell us a little bit about them. They were. So, okay. So, you know, we would tour together often. And this was, you know, probably starting in like 94, 95. We would all all tour together on the East Coast. Like we did Strife, Earth Crisis, Snapcase, and Lifetime in Josh Grabell's basement in New Jersey. The basement of his house. So like, (laughs) like, you know, like at that time, 
it was like, oh, this is a show. It was a cool show, but it wasn't like a thousand people. You know what I mean? It was like, oh yeah, it's three bands, current bands that are, you know, people like playing together. It wasn't anything strange. I can't imagine that not being a thousand person show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, but so later on the original California takeover we did in 96 and that was basically, it got to a point where the three of us hadn't played together in a while. I don't know if we ever played all three of us together on the West coast. We had the idea and I think it was Sid's idea. Like, Hey, let's do this on the West coast. Let's fly these bands out here for a weekend. You know, we did a show at the uh, the Whiskey and a show at the Showcase, and let's record it. So that was actually recorded by the same um, same producer who did who recorded One Truth and In This Defiance. He brought his whole board and everything to the Whiskey, and um, you know, it really captured the the live show. It's like it's like a, a you know. Being at a show in 1996, you know, you can't recreate that. So it's really that moment in time. And, and you know, we, we again, we did this just thinking, oh, this would be a cool thing. But, like, over time, you know, a lot of people, again, it was pre-YouTube, right? So you couldn't go to YouTube and be like, oh, I'm going to watch a video of Strife. You couldn't do that. So, like, if you weren't going to a show, you're not experiencing these bands live. So that this, aside from like a, a VHS, which we also did. I, I bought that. That was the first VHS I ever bought from a, like from a record store. I remember buying it being oh, so like, oh yeah. And this was the other thing was that when I went to the, the record store that was near my house, it was probably about 20 minutes away. When I went in, there was a whole section that was just the victory stuff. It was like all the victory t-shirts, all like the victory uh, CDs, all the LPs, uh, all the VHS is all in one place. And that was like my big thing is my mom would give me a gift certificate there for Christmas. And I would go up there and spend all my money. Pre-YouTube, if you weren't going to a show, the next best thing to experiencing this band live is going to be a live record, right? So people really appreciated it. They appreciated like the in-between song banter and and maybe the songs were played slightly different. You know, so, so you know, as much like my favorite AF record, is, you know, it, it's potentially the, the live at CBGB record, right? It's such a great record and, and, and the best recording of a lot of those songs, in my opinion. You know, I love Victim and Pain. I'd say Victim and Pain's probably my favorite, but that's probably my second second best uh, AF record, right? So without being able to, you know, go to your computer and watch it on YouTube, like it was giving these kids across the world a chance to experience our band in a live setting. And I think that's why it became such an important record so many years later, right? Yeah, so things are picking up. Now for your second LP, In This Defiance, now, this mm-hmm. this was a big deal. We've got a lot of big guest stars on it. Chino Moreno from Deftones, Dino Cazares from Fear Factory, Igor Cavalera from Sepultura. I mean, you guys must have been on cloud nine recording this thing. We were. We were. So we were fresh off a tour. We did, we did the uh, Roots tour with Sepultura in Europe. We played the actual last show Sepultura ever played with the original lineup at wow. Brixton Academy. So we are fresh off this tour um, and we are playing soccer stadiums. Like it, it was insane. Like we, we met Igor, uh, we had a show in Arizona, right? Tell us, a, as a brief aside, tell us a little bit about those shows. What was it like to be a part of shows like that? 
Oh, it was insane. Like, like, like we, we were playing soccer stadiums. There was nights where we would be loading out and, and, and getting ready to leave and tour buses would, would be showing up to load in for the next day. And it was kiss. Like kiss was playing the same, (laughs) the same venue with us as us the next day. And that happened like three or four times on that tour. So yeah, it, it was insane. Uh, you know, and that was like always our goal as a band was to like reach beyond just playing for straight edge kids, just playing for hardcore kids. Like we really knew that if we wanted to grow our band, but grow hardcore as a whole, that we we needed to play to different audiences and gain new fans and introduce new kids to hardcore, right? So that was something we always did from the beginning. And doing these shows with Sepultura at their peak, right, where we'd play shows with 15,000 people or 20,000 people, it was amazing. You know, it it was amazing. And we forged a friendship with those guys that we still have to this day. You know, Igor is one of my best friends. So Strife is playing a full soccer stadium. What is the crowd reaction like to that? It was insane. Like we played this. Okay. We played a show in, in Czech Republic that day we went to a ceremony. Uh, Sepultura received a gold record for roots. So it was a big press conference and they received their, their gold record. And then we play this crazy stadium. I think that show was like 13,000 people or, you know, it really just inspired us. Those people were not strife fans. Like, you know, you would get, you know, a couple hundred, you know, maybe a hundred, 200 strife fans that could buy tickets before it sold out or wanted to spend, I don't know how much tickets were, but wanted to spend that money, you know, so you would have fans up front, but, but it was like a challenge to us. Like, Hey, we're going to give everything we got to win these metalheads over. Right. That have no idea who we are that never heard us and never seen a hardcore band. And we're just going to play as hard as we can. And it was awesome. Like Igor would come out and play what will remain with us every single night, like twice as fast as, as than it was ever recorded. <laughs> and, and, you know, we would come out and, 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 and do drum parts with Sepultura and Rick and I would do a Chromax cover with them every night. Well, would you guys, what did you cover from Chromax? We got to know the, oh, the, the, uh, the obvious, the obvious choice. It's actually on, there's a, there's a, a live record from Sepultura's last show at, at the Brixton Academy. It's called, uh, it's called under pale gray sky. It's, the last recording with the original lineup um, live and, and Rick and I do that cover live with them. So you could, you could probably find it on uh, whatever Spotify or whatever. That was my jump from uh, like New York hardcore to kind of like modern hardcore was my brother. I had a similar situation going on with like you had a neighbor that would lend you records. My brother-in-law used to give me records and he let me borrow a couple of records over the weekend and I just made a tape of it. I didn't even get to listen to him. I literally was in the middle of doing other stuff and I was like, all right, I'll listen to these later. And it was Cro-Mags, Age of Quarrel and Best Wishes. And they, I was like, this is amazing. This is like metal mixed with punk. I don't know what this is, but I fucking love it. And I remember when I was talking to a couple of friends at school, they're like, well, if you like that, you'll like strife. I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Like, dude, you got to go check them out. Like that was like the jump for me was like, oh, these guys have that same metallic sound, but they're doing hardcore. This is amazing. Yeah. And that, you know, that was a huge influence on us. Right. So that, that makes sense that you would go from Chromax to, 
to strife because that you know we were heavily influenced by Cro-Mags and sick of it all you know a lot of the New York hardcore bands so the uh, in this defiance a huge album I mean were you on big tours after that how how was everything yeah so basically we came off of this tour and we're like yo we got to make a we we got to be harder like you know what I mean like we we want to do what Sepultura is doing like but still be strife right so we're like w- Obviously, seeing a band like that, like for thirty plus nights in a row, you you will get some influences that creep in. I think you could definitely hear it if you go back and listen to that record. But you know, we're like we're gonna write the hardest, heaviest record that we can. You know, we did have some songs already written and and a few we finished up after that tour. And then again, like we we wanted to bridge that gap between hardcore. And just heavy music. Like, you know, we weren't just listening to straight edge hardcore. Like we all love Deftones. We all love Sepultura. We all love Fear Factory. And, you know, so we're like, I think there's, at that time, there wasn't really a lot of hardcore kids listening to Deftones. Like, yes, now I think there are. I I think, you know, I think there was more hardcore kids that into Sepultura, but I don't think kids were really messing with, with Deftones. But, you know, we had the Deftones demo. Um, like we were, we were into Deftones the second we heard them. Uh, we were playing with bands like Far, who was from Sacramento and kind of similar style. So to us, it was just like another form of music. So, you know, we hit up our friends and asked them to be a part. So, you know, Dino was somebody we'd hang out with often and super funny guy and, and a good friend of ours. And so we're like, hey, do you want to do this whole part? Igor was in town, I think, working on some Sepultura post-Mac. So, like, you know, working. I think Derek was in the band at that time, and they were kind of working out their record or whatever. Uh, So he came in and and recorded, you know, his drums for Overthrow. And then our manager at the time was from Sacramento. So we're like, yo, you got to get Chino on this. You need, need to get Chino on this track. So he called up Chino. I think we flew him down from Sacramento or whatever. And he came in the studio. And I remember like me, me and Sid were there when he's recording his vocals and we're just like freaking out just cause he, you know, he sounded so awesome. He sounded exactly, you know, exactly what we wanted him to sound like, you know, we kind of gave him an idea and he just did his thing. And we're like, he's recording. And we're like high-fiving each other, just like super stoked. Like we can't believe it, you know, but this was Deftones on their, first record too. So they're not like the giant band they are now, but yeah. So, you know, we, we do that. And the cool thing is like, I've run into Chino in the last, you know, whatever, 10 years or whatever. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk to him and he's like, dude, it's so cool. We did that song so many years ago. He's like, I still get kids coming up to me, giving me props for, for working with you guys uh, back then doing that song with you. So it's, it's really cool. You know, I think he was, into some hardcore bands, you know, but I wouldn't say he was a hardcore kid, right? You know, there were bands like Will Haven that Deftones would play with very often and Will Haven would play with Strife or Far or whatever. There was crossover, but it wasn't like asking Carl from Earth Crisis to sing on a Earth Crisis record, right? I think it I think it's cool. I think, you know, I I think it it helped obviously expose us to their fans, but I think it really helped expose their bands to hardcore fans as well. 
Yeah, because you're right. Uh, hardcore kids didn't really start listening to Deftones until White Pony, I'd say. So this was earlier. Yeah. So in this Defiance is out, right? We're playing. And yep. now you have your initial breakup sometime around 1998. Now, what happened? You know, I think the reality of it is we had this weird little deal. We had to play like, I don't know. We were just touring too much. And I think we were just getting on each other's nerves, right? I know that summer we had like a month-long tour lined up. It was like Hate Breed and I think it was Hate Breed and Earth Crisis. And then immediately after that, we had a full Warp Tour. So like two-month tour on the Warp Tour. So we had like three months of touring ahead of us. There was people in the band that liked touring. There was people in the band that didn't like touring. And I think it was just like, very daunting to have like, Oh, we're going to tour for three months straight. And I just think it got to a point where it was like, okay, we're, it felt a little bit more like a job than like, Oh, we're doing this for fun, you know? And I think there was just, you know, it's like one of those things you, we got so much pushback from everyone for everything we did. Like, our records were too produced, our, you know, our guarantees too high, whatever it was. And it was just like, you're dealing with all this bullshit. Um, because at that time also, as you know, is like, it was, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a trend, but it was like a lot of kids were like very like politically correct. And they wanted you to be like records are $5 and, you know, shows you our donation, you know, just like not what we were doing. There was a lot more gatekeeping at the time. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Gatekeeping. And so you'd have bands like writing songs about us because whatever, they were jealous that we were on victory. I don't even know what it was, but there was a lot of bullshit. And I think, combine, you know, you combine that with people not being that excited to tour and having a lot of touring going on. And I think, you know, it kind of just uh, fell apart. So how old were you when this happened? I don't know, 20, 27 or something. Yeah. So you're still young. I mean, you've been doing music pretty much your whole life. Would it, did you ever think maybe you would get out of music or do something else? Where were you at at the time? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we were all, you know, it's interesting. I think we were all kind of like, we're all into fashion and skateboarding. So like, you know, once the band stopped, Sid was running a skateboard shop and Rick was running like some high end fashion stores. And I got into fashion I was working in fashion and, you know, we all kind of did that, but then we, we quickly realized that we missed playing music. You know what I mean? So it, it didn't take too long for us to start a new band, which, you know, it was called anger means. It was me and Sid. Initially it was just going to be me and Sid um, I was going to write the music, say so was going to play the drums, and then I was going to sing. And at the time, I just I couldn't pull off the singing. I, I just didn't know how to do it in the studio. And which is weird because I could, I sing in a band now, and it's fine. I wish I wish I just gave it more of a chance. I just expect to be able to go in there and and do it right and like sing sing a song from beginning to end. I don't know. It takes months of preparation. I learned yes. that myself. No. You know, you can't just yeah. go in the first time and do it. There's a there's a lot of no. prep work involved. Exactly. And I just wasn't prepared. So we we recorded these two songs. 
I tried to sing on it. It didn't work out how I thought. We actually had a deal with Victory already. And so we like called Rick and Rick started singing. So it was just like, you know, we started this band and it basically became the same band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Basically yeah. became the, <laughs> the same band. Uh, we played some shows and we, we wrote songs, but we had Franklin from Shelter playing bass. And I think our friend Tom playing second guitar. And then Franklin moved and Chad came back in. You know, so eventually it just became the same band. So we're like, okay, it's all the same people. Like, we should just do Strife. So at that point, we did it back to Strife. We recorded the Anger Means record and uh, toured on that. Right. And you guys have been playing on and off ever since then, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So let's talk about the new record that we've got coming out. The Return of the California Takeover live LP is coming out November 19th on War Records. And that's your label, right, Andrew? That's my label. Um, So basically, over the past 10 years, Strife, Earth Crisis, and Snapcase, we always get offered to try to do these California Takeover shows at festivals or or whatever. And for whatever reason, it, it, it... just never worked out. And in 2019, I was in Europe with Strife and Scott from Earth Crisis hit me up and he's like, hey, we're trying to do the California Takeover again. You guys down. So my guys could do it. And so we booked two shows. We booked San Francisco and we booked LA. And, you know, that was the first time. I, I would I would say that was probably the first time we all, all three bands played together since the last California Takeover recording in 96. I would imagine. So we played two amazing sold out shows. Some of these would be less than a month later, the the world was in lockdown. And so these were the last show for many, many people. Uh, it was the last show they saw, you know, for a year and a half. And so we announced these shows and then our, our good friend, uh, Aaron Bruno, he's in a band called a wall nation, very big rock band. Uh, he hit us up and said, you know, he wanted to record and produce the show. He's like, let's do a new California takeover. I want to record it. I think I could do it better and do it awesome. And so we agreed to do that. And him and his engineer buddy, Eric Stenman came out and, and we recorded it. And now, now it's coming out in November. So we're super excited. Um, I think it's a really fun uh, project. I'm excited to have it on my label and to be working with, you know, such awesome bands like Snapcase and Earth Crisis and, and doing something like this on my label. So it, it's it's really cool, and I think people should really dig it. Yeah, I mean, it's an all-star lineup, classic bands, and I love that we're returning to this thing for the first time since 1996. What was it like to play those shows again after all these years and see everybody? I mean... Did, what kind of feelings did you feel? Did you have all kinds of memories come flooding back? Yeah, of course. Like, you know, we've all stayed uh, somewhat in contact over the years. Definitely me more than other people in my band, right? But like, you know, so like I, I we, we would play shows with Earth Crisis or we'd be on a festival together. Or I'd talk to Scott or see one of those guys or, you know, my other band play with Snapcase when they last time they came to L.A., so like I've been in touch with these guys, but I, I think it was really awesome. You know, not only like the show sold out super fast, which, you know, shows that 
there was a demand for it, right? And kids were excited and that felt really good. But the shows were just perfect. Like no fights, a great energy from the crowd um, and a great feeling. And, you know, it, it, it was the perfect, we couldn't have asked for better shows. You know, we couldn't have asked for better shows. Um, and it was just so cool to hang out with our old friends that we played so many shows with over the years. And um, so it, it was great. And then to to document that again and have a new record, I think, is just like the icing on the cake, right? Uh, produced by an old friend of ours, Aaron, whose original band, Insurgents, played one of the original California Takeover shows as well. So it kind of just... You know, it all makes sense. Yeah, it's awesome. And folks, make sure you pick it up. November 19th, it's coming out on War Records. So how long have you been doing the label, Andrew? I want to say maybe about eight years. It's been a while. This is like, I think the return of the California takeover might be, I should know, but I think it's like release number 28 or 29 on the label. Tell us about starting and running the label. How many people are involved? How do you get it started? You know, so my whole life, I always wanted to own a, my own record label, something I always wanted to do and, and just never did. And after we recorded the Witness of Rebirth record in 2012, I did so much for that record. Like I, I coordinated the recording. We recorded that in Brazil, actually, um, with Igor from Sepultura on drums. So we flew to Brazil me and Nick Jet, who produced it, and we recorded all the drum tracks. Then we came back and recorded everything else here. But, you know, I was so involved in the recording process and creating all the promotion from, you know, we did like studio videos that my friend in, in Brazil filmed for us. And then we did music videos. And so like after that, I was like, I basically did everything for the record. I was like, I don't know why I just... I don't know why I gave it to a label to put out because I, I know I could do this, right? So there was a few tracks left over from that session. So I was like, I'm going to release this as a 12-inch. That was uh, War Records number one. It was a Strife incision record. And, um, you know, basically it just, that, that was the first release and it just kind of grew from there. War Records is basically just me running it. But I do have a lot of friends that help along the way. Amazing graphic designers. Uh, Lennis Garcies uh, does a lot of art for the label um, and releases. Jeremy Dean does a lot of art for my releases. My friend Dave, who runs Indecision Records, is always helpful whenever I have questions about pressing or whatnot. You know, he set me up with the first pressing plant I used, who's now closed. You know, we're distributed through Revelation, so they're very helpful. And yeah, it's like, you know, it's a one-man operation. I got a network of friends who help me out when I need it, and uh, and that's it. But, it, but it's been cool, and, and um, you know, I, I put out some really great records from some really great bands, and, you know, I've got the new California Takeover record coming out. I got a Berthold City LP, Bent Blue LP, Fixation LP. So I, I've got a lot of releases lined up through um, 2022. That sounds great. So uh, what is Strife up to these days? You got more music planned? You got more tours planned? What's going on? Uh, we started working on a new record. I'm not really sure when we will finish it. It's been a little tricky with the uh, with the pandemic and and people with kids and kind of scheduling that. 
Um, the next thing we do have on the books is we are doing an East Coast edition of the California Takeover shows in May. Right. Now, that was supposed to happen, I think, this year, but it got pushed back due to yeah. COVID, right? Yeah, it was supposed to be early October, and yeah, just people were not really comfortable with uh, playing shows at, at that scale yet. Understandable, you know, there's three bands, and so that's 15 people plus crew. It's like, we got to get everybody on the same page where everybody feels comfortable and, and agrees, you know. Plus, it's a hardcore show. There's crowd surfing. You're you're holding the mic out into the crowd and taking it back and putting it near your mouth. There's a lot of considerations. And that's the thing. So it's like, okay, you can make the show really safe, but is that how you want the show to go on, right? Or do you Absolutely want not. the show to go crazy? It, you know, and, and it's like, you know, it's like I've gone to quite a few shows since and played shows since um, things have opened back up. And so like- you know, looking back now, I think we probably could have safely played those shows. But again, I, I don't want to force somebody, you know, I'm not going to try to convince somebody to do something they're not comfortable with on the odd chance that maybe they catch COVID and bring it home to their kids. Like, I'm not, I'm not taking the blame for that. Right. So it's just like, I'm down to do it when everyone's comfortable. And it looks like, uh, May's that time. So we're looking forward to do those shows. Yes, we're looking forward to seeing them as well. So, Andrew, I mean, you've you've done a lot. You've toured the world. You've toured the U.S. You've toured during the modern heyday of straight-edge hardcore. What's some of the craziest stuff you've seen? Give us the dirt. Well, you, ha- you have the Strife DVD, I mean, or, or VHS or whatever. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there was an incident in that in Chicago where we were chased by a cat. <laughs> at gunpoint by a cab driver through the streets of Chicago. And you, you kind of get an idea what's going on in the video, but you kind of don't because everyone was ducking. Cause we were scared of getting shot. Uh, oh my God. That, that was pretty, that was pretty wild. You know, it was like one of those weird things like road rage. It was like a road rage incident. And I think, I don't know, maybe we had a van and trailer, so we probably cut him off. And then, you know, maybe he flipped us off and somebody flipped him off back and he couldn't take it. So there was a crazy chase through the streets of Chicago in traffic with a guy brandishing a gun out the window. <laughs> oh, my God. Is he like driving after you, pointing the gun at you? Yeah, he's chasing us. And, you know, it was like one of those. It was like a movie. Like we turned down this alley and we're like, yes, we, we escaped. And then. You know, you get to the end of the alley and he's waiting there for you. And <laughs> we're backing up into cars. It was definitely crazy. But, you know, there, there's been so many crazy things um, throughout the years. I imagine. Because, uh, you know, uh, at an Earth Crisis Snapcase Strife show in 1996, I imagined, like, nothing but fights, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> we, we were fortunate that most of our shows were peaceful. That's good. You know, we 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 would uh, definitely advocate for that. I think after kind of ninety six was that turning point where it started to get a bit more violent. Yeah, ninety six to ninety nine was uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, those were rough. Those were really rough shows. Yeah, I, those were really. I remember going to a handful of shows, being like, I, I don't know if the 
danger factor is an appeal at this point, but like to my teenage brain, I think it definitely was. <laughs> like it's like, oh, this is this is sketchy as fuck. This is <laughs> <laughs> so uh so let's recap. We've got the return of the California takeover live. It's coming out November nineteenth on War Records. We want to pick that up, yes? Absolutely. We've got the East Coast California takeover shows, Earth Crisis, Snapcase, and of course, Strife. Now, have those officially been rescheduled? They have, yeah. They've, they've been rescheduled to May. So we're, we're doing the same venues, and there'll be a, a slight adjustment in opening bands. But uh, May 13th is Buffalo at the uh, Town Ballroom. May 14th. And 15th, they're in uh, Philadelphia at Underground Arts. All previous tickets were honored. And if uh, they did allow refunds, which I think that window is closed, and all those shows were sold out. So I'm I'm not sure if there are tickets available or not, but I would assume maybe not. So, folks, if you didn't get a ticket, just hang out outside the venue. Look for someone selling one the day of the show. You can get in. If you try, show up, sneak in. You know, yeah, it's punk rock. <laughs> Come on, Let's yeah, do we'll this. do our best. We'll put you in a <laughs> put you in a bass drum or whatever whatever we we have to do. But yeah, show up. Let's have fun. And uh, strife. We're playing. We're recording. We'll have a new record at some point. Yes, I'm hoping. Yeah, we 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 started working on a new record, so we just need to finish it. So we'll put that in the uh, the goals uh, for 2022. I got a band that I sing in called. Berthold City, also on War Records. We got two seven inches out, but we'll have a new album out early uh, 2022. So keep an eye out for that. Andrew, we just want to thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to speak with us. You've created so much great music over the years that we love, and you've done a lot. And I just want to say we appreciate you. Awesome. I appreciate the interview, guys. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. You were excellent. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. There you have it, folks. Andrew Klein. Excellent conversation. He's done so much. He's doing so much. And yeah, Tommy, reading about the history of Strife, he mentioned that they were trying to do something different and they were trying to reach broader audiences. And they did. I was reading it. I was like, wow, look at the guest appearances they have yeah. on their second album. You know, he's saying they're playing stadiums with Sepultura, which is just crazy. I think Sepultura owns a soccer team. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they're like Iron Maiden. They just like they have all these other kind of like irons in the fire at the same time. Like they just they're fucking, massive. Oh, yeah. gigantic. And Andrew had a lot of good stories. And Tommy, this was a great way to kick off the first episode of the new scene. I love it. I, I I'm excited. We have some really great guests coming up. And like I said before, with having Casey as kind of a sounding board and someone that can really help us kind of grow this, it's like. It's just an incredible opportunity for all of us. It's really great. I'm so excited. We're really excited, and we're excited to have you with us on this journey. But folks, we're saving all the fanfare for our bonus episode, and that's dropping Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., so check that out. Well, thank you again, Andrew, for helping us kick off the fun. And folks, there was a startling revelation (laughs) while the mics were off and we were preparing. Tommy's Christmas gift for his wife came today. Yeah. And 
he said he got her an Apple Watch. And I was like, great. And he's like, oh, I have to test it to see if it's broken. You know, I want to make sure it works right. And Tommy, tell the people where you got this. I bought it from eBay. And what condition is it in? Well, according to the seller, in very good condition. And I would agree with them. It is. There's no major scratches, dings, or dents. Uh, it connected. What autom- Tommy is saying is that he bought his wife a used <laughs> Apple Watch from eBay for Christmas. <laughs> I have I have to tell her not to listen to this episode. <laughs> Tommy, why don't you love your wife? <laughs> I, I love my wife, but I love money too. I love saving money. There's something, and there's a real. I think this is a sickness because we dug into oh, yeah. it, and Tommy. Tommy doesn't buy anything new. Oh, no. And I think that's a little messed up. We went through this with the show, Tommy. I, you know, early in the show, I, I told Tommy to get a professional mic. And he first he bought a janky one from eBay that didn't work. Then he bought it from some specialty shop because he could save $2. And I, I finally had to have an intervention with him. And I was like, Tommy, for the love of God, <laughs> buy the microphone from this link, from this legitimate retailer. Ugh. So what? let's dig into this a little bit, Tommy. What happened? What happened when you were young? I don't know. I guess, like, you know, there was my, especially after my father passed away, there wasn't a lot of money around. So I, I've always been extraordinarily cautious with money. So it's one of those things now that I look as, and I, <laughs> this is kind of weird to say it. I get really like excited. Like there's the thrill of like getting a good deal. Like that, that like gets me amped up when I so see So you're that. a thrill seeker uh, in terms of saving money. Inter- yeah, yeah. So this is an, an addiction. So uh, you were traumatized by the passing of your father and the lack of funds. And you are coping with this undealt with trauma by chasing deals. But I don't hide it. I, there's no hiding this. I, if there's anything that doesn't fall into that column of like addictive behavior, I don't try to hide it. I am actually boastfully proud of what I fucking do. <laughs> Would you say that you are constantly thinking of ways that you can save money? Uh, yeah, I th- I, I think uh, a lot of it comes down to I, I like spending money on things that I know are worthwhile and like let's just put it this way we had this conversation last week or a couple weeks ago with my wife where she was like let's go to the apple orchard and get pumpkins and all this stuff and i was like did you buy used pumpkins no <laughs> do they make used ones how do you I use they it? did you would know They're, about it. i was gonna say i so i was like but here's the thing you go to these places right you stand in line to get on the hayride you get on the hayride to go stand in line to get a pumpkin you get a pumpkin you stand in line to pay for the fucking thing and on the way there the kids are like i want a candy apple and it's like bro these are three for five dollars at the fucking supermarket and I'm going to pay $8 a piece here. Like, this is fucking stupid. Like, and all the time we're wearing fall clothes and sweating so my wife can take one picture. It's stupid. I don't want to fucking do it. So I'm like, I, I, I made the case. There, this you're is dropping a-, a lot of F-bombs. And now you really do hate spending money, don't you? I, well, I, uh, I, I made the, this is how I figured, this is how I convinced my wife. I made the case to my daughters. I was like, look, we can either go to this place. It's 20 minutes away. We end up spending a ton of money or we can go to the place down the street. Like, the, you know, I forget it was like Acme or something like that. We can pick out whatever pumpkins we want. And for the same amount of money, we can get apple cider and donuts 
and candy apples and we can also have money left over to get ice cream tonight and they were like uh yeah ice cream one i was like yeah exactly see so you're an annoying parent oh 100 percent. yeah because like that sounds lame like I, I want to go to the pumpkin patch and get a pumpkin. I don't. It's not a. Well, you're like you know that meme where it's like you know the kid is like, can we get X? And then the mom's like, we have X at home, and it's like something really shitty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're that parent, aren't you? Yeah, they ordered their pumpkins from Wish. dot com. It's the the shitty version of whatever you thought you were gonna get. Ah, oh, <laughs> we're gonna have to have a long talk when the mics go off. <laughs> You got to splurge every once in a while, especially for your wife. No, I was listing out stuff that I purchased on eBay, and Keith was like, what? Like, Taylor, J. Crew men's button-up shirt, $8. This is a sickness, Tommy. J. Crew long-sleeved men plaid button-down, $3. Men's Nike Vapor Max, $71. So this is what our show has become? You just listing cheap things you bought? Yeah, but it's it look, dude, this stuff is killer. It's like people buy it, they they, they fuck it up in terms of the returns, and then they're like, look, I got this fucking thing sitting at my house. I can't get rid of it. I already pulled the tags off it. Or sometimes I buy stuff, it still has the tag. Two of those J. Crew shirts had the tags on them. Take them home and wash them. It's like same as buying it from the thrift store, except, you know, I have to wait for it in the mail. I don't know about you, Tommy. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> well... Listen, we're excited that we're the new scene. We're excited that you're with us on our journey. And we're excited that we spoke to Andrew Klein from Strife. And even though Tommy (laughs) might be cutting corners in every other part of his life, we can guarantee that there will be no cutting corners with the new scene. What do you think about that? I think the new podcast should come from eBay. (laughs) (laughs) It's half price. If Tommy got his hands on this show, we'd be recording on $3 microphones and everything would be broken. Oh, I would just yell at every. Just do it on your voice memo. Just be Yeah. <laughs> the show it would sound like the first four episodes basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all we got. Key takeaways. I'm a cheapskate. New scene is awesome. Strife is awesome. There you go. That's all you need. So, check in with us again Wednesday, folks. We're going to be back on the air with Casey Iodine, and we're going to dig a little bit into the new scene and how it all came about. I'm going to make him say nice stuff about us, like why he chose us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I want some compliments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be fishing for that for sure. <laughs> That's all I would. It's like when somebody says something nice about you, you're like, yeah, just say more of that. Just keep, <laughs> just keep, com- just keep coming with that. Well, that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next time. Yeah!